Just think of the abundant sinfulness of any one transgression, for every sin has a myriad of sins in its bowels. Did you ever find a spider's nest just when the young spiders have all come to life? It is a city of spiders. Now such is any one sin. It is a colony of iniquities, a living mass of offense. You have but to stir it, and you will see countless sins running out of it. It is an aggregation of evils. I remember once studying with such care various works upon the sin of Adam, and I was convinced by each writer that it was a different sin, and came at last to the conclusion that the sin of Adam, simple as it was, had all sorts of sins hidden within it. Sin is not only a double flower, but it blooms sevenfold. It is a complicated mischief, in a thousand ways abhorrent to the holy God, and yet he pardons it, abundantly pardons it. Some sins are plotted and planned and performed with presumptuous deliberation, so that when the act itself is perpetrated, it is only one part of a whole mass of transgression. The man has first to consider how to do it, and then there is sin in the consideration. If it were a sin of revenge, for instance, the anger which first suggested it was a sin. Then the malice which preyed upon the supposed injury and turned it over was sin. And then the prostitution of wit and wisdom to the scheming of some cunning mode of vengeance. All this was sin. Many a sin is a development from a long succession of sins, and many have a genealogy far longer than the pedigree of the man himself, and be intensely full of sin all along. Some sins have in them strange contradictory measures. We have known men sin from pride and covetousness, and yet fall into that which was once mean and ruinous to their hope of gain. We have seen self-righteousness and lust riding on the same saddle. What art thou, O sin? A monster of forms, uncouth and contrary. I see thee one moment as an angel of light, and the next thou art a fiend, black as the midnight of Gehenna. Thou grovelest like a serpent, and anon thou shinest like a seraph. Thou art all things to all men, if by any means thou mayest deceive some, and cast them down into the pit. Yet this vile thing the Lord forgives to men for Jesus' sake. Does he not abundantly pardon? In addition to there being many sins in one sin, I want you to remember how much virus of sin we sometimes manage to stow away in a sin. A man has done wrong and smarted for it, yet he does the very same thing again willfully against his own conscience and against the warning he has received. A man will sometimes acknowledge what a fool he has been and yet play the fool again. Some men sin for no motive whatever, for mere wantonness of sin. It is a very astonishing thing to read in the newspapers of crimes that persons will sometimes fall into who appear to have had no inducement to do so at all. Persons in good circumstances 
who might have purchased readily enough the very things they steal. This increases guilt and makes sin by far the more heinous if we do it in sheer willfulness. If any of us have been blessed with a tender conscience and with pious training, we have heard the sound preaching of the gospel and have had light and knowledge. If we go deliberately into sin, there is in that sin a degree of obnoxiousness to God, which is not to be found in the transgressions of the poor and ignorant, who have lived in darkness and scarcely know what they do. Yet sins against light and knowledge God pardons. Deliberate and presumptuous sins He forgives. Blasphemous, impudent, and provoking sins, sins that would otherwise sink us low as the lowest hell. His mighty mercy sweeps away in one single moment when we believe in Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, not merely sins vanish that are a little stain upon us, but the deep and double crimson of deliberate guilt and the staring scarlet of gross iniquity all disappear when we are washed in the fountain filled with blood which is open for sin and for uncleanness. Abundance of sinners are forgiven, the abundance of sins, and the abundance of the sin which lies in each one of the sins is removed. He will abundantly pardon. Our text grows, does it not? Let us notice next that the Lord abundantly pardons when we consider the abundant means of pardon He has been pleased to provide for sinners. It was not possible that God should so pardon sin as to leave a slur upon his moral government. If a judge sitting upon the bench should pass over great crimes without any kind of retribution, it would be a great misfortune to the country, for very soon crime would be regarded as a mere trifle. Leniency to the wicked would turn out to be cruelty to the just. When a man who commits violence in the streets has the lash upon him, we may pity him if we like, but if that lash were not used, we should have a greater need to pity those good and honest citizens who are half killed when they are seeking their homes at nightfall. A judge must never so pass by offenses as to increase them. God will not show pardon in such a way that men shall think lightly of sin or question the vigor of his justice. What then was he to do? Why, he must provide a way by which he can be just, and yet the justifier of the ungodly. And he did provide it. His own son became the substitute for the guilty, and in their room instead he suffered the wrath of God for man, so that now the severity of God is upheld in the death of Jesus, and the mercy of God in the forgiveness of those for whom he died. Now that there is abundant pardon may be clearly seen from the fact that the substitute was not an angel, was no creature of bounded power and merit, but he who came to save us was none other than God himself, very God of very God. The fountain filled for us to wash in is not a fountain which can only cleanse a little and then will be exhausted of its virtues. The Son of God has filled it from his pierced heart, and the merit of the atoning blood is without limit. 
there was a limit to the purpose for which it was shed, for he loved his church and gave himself for it. But it is blasphemous to imagine that there is any boundary to the merit of the atonement itself. There is in the sacrifice of the Son of God a degree of power which seraphim cannot conceive. Were all the stars worlds, and were they all filled with myriads of inhabitants who had revolted against God, if an atonement had been wanted for them all, it was not within my power to conceive that a greater atonement could be required for the whole host of creatures than that which Christ presented upon the cross. The boundless merit of it, therefore, makes us rejoice, for our God will abundantly pardon. Sinner, if there had been a little Savior, you might have despaired. Sinner, if the Savior had offered a small sacrifice, if there had been but a narrow degree of merit in it, his agonies and cries, I might have spoken to you with bated breath. But now I know he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. And therefore, I am warranted to declare to you that God, even our God in Christ Jesus, will abundantly pardon. May God send these things home to the hearts of those who are laboring under a sense of guilt. And now I must notice in the sixth place the abundant ease of the terms of pardon. When a man says he will forgive another and does not mean it, he puts hard conditions and says, I will forgive him under certain circumstances, if he does this and if he does that. This is not abundant pardon. It is a little niggardly spirit of forgiveness. In fact, it is no forgiveness at all. But look how God puts it. Does he say to a man, I will forgive you if you weep for seven years or do penance for a lifetime? Or, I will forgive you if you bring so much gold or silver, or promise this, or promise that? No, no, not at all. It is hearty forgiveness, and therefore the terms are simple and easy. When I say terms, I merely use the word from want of a better, for indeed the terms are no terms at all. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is all. No man can expect to be forgiven if he goes on with his sin. You cannot expect God to pardon that which you continue to provoke him with. That was absurd. The sin must be given up. The Gospel says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You cannot expect a medicine to cure you if you will not take it. Neither can you expect God to pardon you if you will not accept pardon from His Son, Jesus Christ. So that all that He asks is that you do ask and are willing to receive, and even that He gives you. For the power to pray, to repent, and to believe all come from Him. And though He bids men believe, and so makes it a duty, yet He gives them faith and so makes it a privilege. What a God he is! He gives to his enemies, to the rebellious, to revolters that go aside more and more, that which makes them repent of their sin for ever behind his back, and cast it into the depth of the sea. 
he will abundantly pardon. Observe again, the abundance of this pardon may be seen in the fullness of it. God's pardons are no shams, no superficialities. He will abundantly pardon, that is to say, he will really pardon. Have you that are pardoned never asked yourself this question? Is it really true? Can it be so? Am I really forgiven? Yes, it is true. God does not pretend to forgive. He does not play at pardoning. When once he says, you are absolved, he does indeed absolve you. The forgiveness is valid. It is valid on earth, in the court of conscience, and above, in the court of heaven. The pardoned sinner is truly pardoned, and no one shall ever condemn him. His sin is not merely supposed to be gone. It is gone. It is not put a little way off from him, but as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. I will cast their iniquities into the depths of the sea, saith he. I will cast them behind my back, is another of his strong expressions. O soul, if thou believest in Jesus, thy sins do not exist. For it is written, He hath finished transgression, and made an end of sin, and brought in everlasting righteousness. And here is the consequence of it. When God puts away sin, he so abundantly pardons that he even imputes righteousness to those who were unrighteous. He doth not impute sin, but he doth give us the righteousness of Christ, with which we are rendered acceptable in his sight. In Christ Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Our Lord does nothing by halves. He found us black, he washes us white. We were naked, and he clothes us. And lest even shadow of a spot should on our souls be found, he took the robe the Savior wrought and cast it all around. For filth there was washing, for nakedness dress, for deformity adornment, for uncomeliness beauty, for all our possible wants a boundless supply. Is not this pardon plenteous when we see what is bound up with it? I am sure I do not know how to speak well enough of this glorious pardon which our God gives. One point is always full of joy to me, and that is that it is irreversible. Those whom the Lord forgives, he never condemns. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He does not play fast and loose with his creatures, forgive today and condemn tomorrow. Once let him blot out the sin, the sin is gone forever. If they search for it, it shall not be found. Yes, it shall not be found, saith the Lord. How I delight to preach about everlasting salvation and irreversible pardon. My God and King changeth not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed, and the covenant blessings are yea and amen with Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. One more only. There is so much to say that I am obliged to multiply particulars. The eighth point is, He doth abundantly pardon, 
because of the abundant blessings which attend that pardon. See how he takes the poor imprisoned soul out of bondage and delivers it, takes off every chain from its hands and feet and makes it rejoice in Christ Jesus. O you that have once been set in the stocks of conviction on account of sin and made to cry out in your sore bondage, you now know, since you are forgiven, what the glorious liberty of the children of God is. You are not now in durance vile, but being justified by faith, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ your Lord. The Lord gives us freedom from the power as well as from the guilt of sin. Those dear lips of Christ are put to the wounds of our sin to suck the poison out, lest the virus of our old transgressions should breed a fresh disease. The blessed dove descends with a healing branch from the tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, and our soul is made to seek after holiness till it perfects it in the fear of God. This is abundant pardon indeed. If a king were to forgive rebels, it were great mercy certainly, but to take those rebels and make them his friends, that is more abundant mercy. Then to adopt them and make them his children, yes, to put coronets on their heads and make them kings and priests in his empire, this were abundant pardon indeed. To take the rebels and provide them royal sustenance, place them at his table, educate and train them, admit them to his palace, grant their requests, commune with them, and take them into his palace with him, that would be an abundant pardon. And yet all this God does for sinners. He makes them his children. He hears their prayers. He gives them fellowship with himself and his dear son. He employs them in offices of trust, sets them about bringing their fellow sinners to himself, and by and by he takes them home to heaven where they shall dwell forever at his right hand in all the bliss and glory of his only begotten Son. Oh, is not this abundantly to pardon? I would to God some seraph could descend with burning tongue to take my place and speak to you this morning on such a theme as this, but no, perhaps I am better speaker to you in such a case, for... Never did angels taste above redeeming grace and dying love. But I have tasted it. This forgiveness is mine today, and I rejoice in it. And as I preach it to you, I preach that which I do know, and set before you that which I have enjoyed. Oh, that others may come and participate in this amazing pardon, this boundless forgiveness of boundless sins. 2. We shall consider next very briefly what are the inferences which flow out of abundant pardon. The first inference is this. There is no room for anybody to despair. If there be here this morning one who has been a drunkard, a man of filthy and unclean life, a thief or worse, if worse can be, there is no reason why he should despair. Suppose I were only able to say this morning, God does pardon sometimes some few sinners. There are few people who have been guilty of great sin, who have been 
forgiven and are in heaven. Why, if men were in their senses, they would find hope even in this and would exclaim, Who can tell? Who can tell? Perhaps he will pardon us. Even on such a slender thread as that, they would hang a hope. And if they were wise, they would go and seek mercy. Jonah could only go through Nineveh and say, Get forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nothing about mercy, not a word of it. But the people of Nineveh said, Who can tell? He may turn from his fierce anger that we perish not. And on the strength of who can tell, they tried it. And the God of mercy spared the guilty city. O poor sinner, if you had only a who can tell, it were worth while to go and try it. But look at my test. There is no who can tell in it. He will abundantly pardon. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, for it must be heart work. And let him turn unto the Lord. Let him seek his face by repentance and faith. That is the meaning. And he will abundantly pardon. The Lord has great mercy for great sinners. I will set the big bell a-ringing, and I will let it ring and ring again. Come and welcome, come and welcome, for the great gates are set wide open. The tables are long, and the oxen and fatlings upon them are plentiful, and myriads are coming. Come along with you. The great bell rings out again. Come and welcome, come and welcome, for he will abundantly pardon. Would God, some soul, would hear the proclamation of this best of news and fly to Christ for pardon this very day. Another inference from my subject is this, that there is a loud call to every one who has not repented to do so. For who would be so base as to offend so good, so kind a Lord? I think that ought to touch each man's heart. Here is one whom you have offended. You think he is very angry, and you feel very angry too, and you offend therefore again. You count him an enemy, and you keep up the quarrel, and you do more mischief to him. You damage his estate, and speak against his reputation. You suppose that all this while he is preparing to deal a very heavy blow at you, and avenge the injuries he has sustained. So you grow more angry still, and hate him more and more. You chew the cud of malice. You get such bitterness out of it that you become worse and worse until you find one day that you have been mistaken all along. A friend meets you and says, Why do you speak so ill of your neighbor? I hate him, abhor him. What for? says the other. Do you know that when he hears of all that you do, he only says, I am very sorry for him? I never did him any hurt, and I never will. Do you know he has often done you great service? You were in debt, and you would have been in prison, only he called and paid your debts for you. When you were very ill, he sent a physician to you, although you never knew that he sent him. It was so, and you were restored. Do you know that he has been buying an estate for you against the time of your trouble which is creeping upon you? And he has settled it in your name and entailed it on you 
and he means that you shall live in a mansion forever? The man says, I never thought that. I could not have believed it, and I do not believe it now. Yet it is true, replies the other. Does he know of all that I have done against him? Oh yes, he has been behind the door often, and heard you call him all sorts of bad names. What did he say then? All he said was, Poor soul, he will be sorry for what he did one of these days, when he knows me better. Do you mean to say that is all he said? Yes. But did he not grow red in the face and threaten a lawsuit or anything of that kind? No, he said. He should win you one of these days when you come to know him. Now, I am sure if you had thus treated any one of your fellow creatures, you would be ashamed of yourself and want to hide your face, would you not? If you then received an invitation from the person whom you had so badly treated, and he said, You need not have any fear to come. I shall never say a word of upbraiding to you as long as you live. Well, you say, Bad as my nature is, I will go and make it up with him. So I pray God that he may plead with you ungodly ones and turn you to himself. What hurt has God ever done to you? His law, is there anything wrong in them? Are they hard, harsh, severe? They are only meant for your good. They are nothing but danger signals telling us not to hurt ourselves. Would God we would not persist in going where we should not. God has prepared for some of you full, unqualified forgiveness and he means to bring you to himself and bless you and carry you safely to heaven. Oh, hold not out against him, but yield by mighty grace subdued. Can you resist its charms? Come now and reason with God while he thus reasons with you. Let your conscience say, Lord, thou art full of mercy. We come to thee. We would be reconciled to thee through the death of thy Son. God grant that the words of the text may have power with many of you. Another inference is this. If there be anybody in this house the text specially calls this morning, it is the biggest sinner here because there cannot be abundant pardon where there is not abundant sin. If anyone here feels that he or she is an abundant sinner, you are the person this text is meant for. Where are you, dear soul? Away back there in the fog? My master calls you. He will abundantly pardon. Mary, you have been a Magdalene. You are the woman. John there, you who have been a persecutor and an opposer of the gospel, you are the man. There is room for abundant pardon in you. You that have never cared for God or devil, you who feel your heart so hard and stubborn that you think you can never be saved, you are the very people the text is for, for there is room for abundant mercy in you. While my text invites each sinner, it has a special finger with which to beckon this morning to those who have abundant sin. Come hither, come hither, for the Lord will abundantly pardon. 
Now for such a forgiving God as this, we ought in return to have great love. If he abundantly pardons, we ought to be abundantly grateful. Love I much, I've more forgiven, I'm a miracle of grace. You believe God has done much for you, never think you can do too much for him. Black sinners, when they get saved, make the fairest saints. In proportion as they earnestly rebelled, they throw the same vigor often into the service of God and become desperately in earnest for the dear Lord who loved them and gave himself for them. But to close, dear friends, what if that mercy should be slighted? What if there should be such abundant mercy and it should be rejected? What if we do despite to the mercy of God and to the blood of his dear Son? Those that are unwilling to be forgiven doubly deserve to be left to their own deserts. If God speaks you fair and you will not have him, you must not wonder if by and by he changes his note. The lamp holds out to burn, and while it burns you may have mercy. It will soon burn out, remember. The longest life is short, and after that there will be no further mercy, no terms of grace. The mercy seat will be gone, and the judgment throne will fill its place. Oh, if God only gave us five minutes to find mercy in, surely, if we were not fools, we should avail ourselves of it. But while he has lingered with some of you for fifty years, and still lingers, do not provoke him. But today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, but turn unto him. Oh, may the Spirit of God turn you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Chapter 8, page 65 A Sermon for the Time Present In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Zephaniah 3, verses 16 through 18. Holy Scripture is wonderfully full and abiding in its inner sense. It is a springing well whereat you may draw and draw again, for as you draw it springs up forever new and fresh. It is a well of water springing up everlastingly. The fulfillment of a divine promise is not the exhaustion of it. When a man gives you a promise and he keeps it, there is an end of the promise. But it is not so with God. When he keeps his word to the full, he has but begun. He is prepared to keep it, and keep it, and keep it forever and ever. What would you say of a man who had wheat upon his barn floor and threshed it until he had beaten out the last golden grain? But the next day he went and threshed it again and brought back as much as the day before. And on the day after that, again taking his flail, he went to the same threshing floor and again brought back his measure as full as the first, and so on for all the days of the year. 
Would it not seem to you as a fairy tale? It would certainly be a surprising miracle. But what should we say if, throughout a long life, this miracle could be prolonged? Yet we have continued to thresh the promises ever since faith was given us, and we have carried away our full portion every day. What shall we say of the glorious fact that the saints in all generations, from the first day until now, have done the same, and of that equal truth that as long as there is a needy soul upon earth, there will be upon the threshing floor of the promises the same abundance of the finest of the wheat as when the first man filled his measure and returned rejoicing. I will not dwell upon the specific application of the text before us. I do not doubt that it was specifically fulfilled as it was intended, and if there still remains some special piece of history to which this passage alludes, it will again be fulfilled in due time. But this I know, that those who have lived between whiles have found this promise true to them. Children of God have used these promises under all sorts of circumstances and have derived the utmost comfort from them. And this morning I feel as if the text had been newly written for the present occasion, for it is in every syllable most suitable to the immediate crisis. If the Lord had fixed his eye upon the condition of his church just now and had written this passage only for this year of grace, 1887, it could scarcely have been more adapted to the occasion. Our business shall be to show this, but I would aim at much more. Let our prayer be that we may enjoy this marvelous portion of the sacred word and take intense delight in it. As God rests in his love, so may we rest in it this morning, and as he joys over us with singing, so may we break forth into joyous psalms to God of our salvation. I am going to begin with the last verse of the text and work my way upwards. The first head is a trying day for God's people. They are sorrowful because a cloud is upon their solemn assembly and the reproach thereof is a burden. Secondly, we will note a glorious ground of consolation. We read in the seventeenth verse, The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee. He is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. And thirdly, here is a brave conduct suggested thereby. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. 1. Beginning at the 18th verse, we notice a trying day for God's people. The solemn assembly had fallen under reproach. The solemn assemblies of Israel were her glory. Her great days of festival and sacrifice were the gladness of the land. To the faithful, their holy days were their holidays. But a reproach had fallen upon the solemn assembly and I believe it is so now at this present moment. It is a sad affliction when in our solemn assemblies the brilliance of the gospel light is dimmed by error. The clearness of the testimony is spoiled 
when doubtful voices are scattered among the people, and those who are to preach the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, are telling out for doctrines the imaginations of men and the inventions of the age. Instead of revelation, we have philosophy, falsely so called. Instead of divine infallibility, we have surmises and larger hopes. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is taught as the production of progress, a growth, a thing to be amended and corrected year by year. It is an ill day, both for the church and the world, when the trumpet does not give a certain sound, for who shall prepare himself for the battle? If added to this, we should see, creeping over the solemn assembly of the church, a lifelessness, an indifference, and a lack of spiritual power, it is painful to a high degree. When the vitality of religion is despised, and gatherings for prayer are neglected, what are we coming to? The present period of church history is well portrayed by the church of Laodicea, which was neither cold nor hot, and therefore to be spewed out of Christ's mouth. The church gloried that she was rich and increased in goods, and had need of nothing, while all the while her Lord was outside, knocking at the door, a door closed against him. That passage is constantly applied to the unconverted, with whom it has nothing to do. It has to do with a lukewarm church, with a church that thought itself to be in an eminently prosperous condition, while her living Lord, in the doctrine of his atoning sacrifice, was denied an entrance. Oh, if he had found admission, and he was eager to find it, she would soon have flung away her imaginary wealth, and he would have given her gold tried in the furnace, and white raiment with which she might be clothed. Alas, she is content without her Lord, for she has education, oratory, science, and a thousand other baubles. Zion's solemn assembly is under a cloud indeed, when the teaching of Jesus and his apostles is of small account with her. If in addition to this, worldly conformity spreads in the church so that the vain amusements of the world are shared in by the saints, then is there reason enough for a lamentation, even as Jeremiah cried, How is the gold become dim? Her Nazarites, who were purer than snow and whiter than milk, have become blacker than a coal. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. If no longer there is a clear distinction between the church and the world, but professed followers of Jesus have joined hands with unbelievers, then may we mourn indeed. Woe worth the day. An ill time has happened to the church and the world also. We may expect great judgments, for the Lord will surely be avenged on such a people as this. Know ye not of old that when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they were joined unto them, then the floods came upon the world and swept them all away? I need not pursue this subject further, lest our burdens take from us the time which is demanded for consolation. It appears from the text 
that there were some to whom the reproach was a burden. They could not make sport of sin. True, there were many who said that the evil did not exist at all, and others who declared that it was not present in any great degree. Yes, and more hardened spirits declared that what was considered to be a reproach was really a thing to be boasted of, the very glory of the century. Thus they huffed the matter and made the mourning of the consciousness to be a theme for jest. But there was a remnant to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Those could not bear to see such a calamity. To these the Lord God will have respect, as he said by the prophet, Go through the midst of the city, to the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. The many drank wine in bowls and anointed themselves with their chief ointments, but they were grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Amos 6, verse 6. But these were pressed in spirit and bore the cross, counting the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. God's people cannot bear that Christ's atoning sacrifice should be dishonored. They cannot endure that his truth should be trodden as mire in the streets. To true believers, prosperity means the Holy Ghost blessing the word to the convictions of sinners in the building up of saints. If they do not see this, they hang their harps upon the willows. True lovers of Jesus fast when the bridegroom is not with his church. Their glory is in his glory and in nothing else. The wife of Phineas, the son of Eli, cried out in her dying agony, The glory has departed, and the reason that she gave was once because of the death of her husband and his father, but twice because the ark of God is taken. For this she named her newborn son Ichabod. The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. The bitterest pain of this godly woman was for the church and for the honor of our God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.